This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome back to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. I'm Maureen McGrath, a registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, and a sexual health educator. Here to answer all of your questions about all of these issues. I know these issues are oftentimes private and they can be embarrassing for people. There's such a taboo around sex uh, and even health. A lot of people are quite embarrassed when they, which you wouldn't expect that people are embarrassed, especially when they become terminally ill. And in this uh, hour of the program, we're going to be talking about glioblastoma, that which John McCain, U.S. Senator, died of um, last night and um, but you know what we need to talk about these issues it's important so that you know what options are available for you Uh, also going to be talking about porn addiction and what is it why do people why are so many people thinking that they have it what are some of the problems around porn what are the problems in your relationship is it considered cheating in your relationship Uh, you know something I wanted to mention I hear a lot about um, cheating of course in my in the work that I do Um, but also given what's going on um, with the president of the United States I've heard a lot of people say when is Melania leaving and you know it used to be that divorce was the new shame but now staying with the cheating guy is the new shame but a lot of women choose to stay and that's not to say that women don't cheat of course women cheat as well um but men uh you know anyone who stays with a cheating spouse can be shamed but you know what it's not a bad idea especially if you're going to work on the issues that you have but uh but many many women find their um partners or many many men find their partners cheating and it can be heartbreaking and it's a huge betrayal and there's so many different types of cheating today especially with the internet we have this micro cheating so emotional cheating is actually more dangerous than the physical cheating at times um, so, you know, it's important that we talk about these issues and that we don't have this, this secret shame associated with them because oftentimes there may be issues in your relationship, like you're not open enough, the intimacy is lacking in the relationship, you're, you fear judgment uh, from your partner um, or any one of a number of reasons. Or, or you've, you know, I've heard so many reasons from patients in that they, they weren't having sex in their relationship. Of course, the sexless marriage is a thing. Um, but also sometimes people say, well, they had only ever dated one person and they wanted to find out if they were sexually normal or they thought they had low sexual desire um, with their partner. And you know what? Sex can get stale kind of midlife. Uh, it can get boring. It can get humdrum. It's the same old, same old. Uh, you know, and and so then they meet somebody else and maybe in another city on a trip or something and they find someone that they're sexually attracted to, uh, which is very important in a marriage, especially at the beginning at least at the beginning of the marriage. Um, but they meet someone they might be sexually attracted to and they, and something is awakened. Their sexuality is awakened. Their femininity, femininity is awakened. And they realize they may have low sexual desire with the person that they're living with or that they're married to, but it may also be 
because we get busy, because we, we're on this auto, you know, uh, automatic, systematic way of approaching life and everything's got to be perfect and we've got to, you know, paint the interior and buy the new furniture and, and make sure that, you know, the kids are where they're supposed to be at all times and, you know, organizing everything and, and not organizing our intimate lives. So I'm going to talk about some, uh, some strategies to increase the uh, sexual pleasure at midlife in this uh, part of the program, this second hour of the program. Uh, so what else are we going to talk about? Yeah, well, right now I want to talk about alcohol. Bottoms up. Uh, <laughs> cheers. Bottoms up may not be a great idea. I actually, it may have benefited me last night because then I wouldn't have had to have been the designated driver at 2.30 in the morning and drive all over Hell's Half Acre um, after a birthday party for a friend. But if you are just joining the program, I'm one of those fortunate people that has an allergy to alcohol and uh, so it doesn't agree with me at all. And it's a rough, it used to be the, the next day would be rough, but now it's like, it seems to take like three days for me to get over it. And it doesn't matter. I actually start to get symptomatic uh, within a fir the first few sips. And uh, so my heart starts to race. I start to get a bit of a headache. I get nasal congestion. I get all of the anticholinergic um, symptoms associated with that. So I I, um, I get nauseous. Uh, I just generally don't feel great. I have a blast, though, I have to say. It agrees with me in that way. <laughs> but oftentimes people think, maybe she has been drinking. But, uh, you know, and often people will say, oh, you're not drinking? I'm like, yeah, I just, I don't drink. And they're like, really? But that could um, mean that uh, it could be have something to do with just the way I am. Um, so I think somebody up above said, no, don't give this one an allergy to alcohol because what's she going to be like if uh, if she drinks? Uh, anyway, so I was actually sort of happy to see this study. Uh, this was a long study, covered a, a, about a 20-year period, um, a 25-year period. It was the Global Burden of Disease Report to determine levels of alcohol use and its effect in 195 countries for men and women between the ages of 15 to 49. Researchers found alcohol use was the leading risk factor for death and disability and accounted for nearly 10% of annual global deaths, about 2.8 million deaths annually. It accounted for about 3% of deaths in women and 12% of deaths in men. In the U.S., excessive alcohol use led to approximately 88,000 annual deaths between 2006 and four years and 2010, and that was from the Centers for Disease Control. Um, you know, so according to this particular study, um, which sheds light on the dangerous impact of alcohol, um, you know, it's, it's alcohol is greatly minimized in our culture. People, you know, you go to parties, you go to wherever. Alcohol is a big social um, aspect of, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, they'll just hold a drink in their hand all night long because others will judge them if they're if they're not drinking. I mean, this country has a raging opioid epidemic, and most of our patients seek treatment for alcohol use disorders. By the way, we no longer use the term alcoholism. Um, it's alcohol use disorders. Um, and so, you know, we've heard it before. A glass of red wine is great for your heart. Um, you know, anything in moderation is fine or alcohol in moderation is fine. But this particular study actually contradicts all of those health guidelines that have been coming out for a number of years. Uh, 
you know, it's it, oftentimes we hear that two drinks is okay, moderation, you know, one drink. There are actually some Canadian drinking guidelines for women and men. Um, and it's, you know, kind of two drinks a day for men, age 65 and younger. That's according to the Mayo Clinic. Um, one drink, by the way, is considered 12 ounces of beer, five ounces of wine, or 1.1 ounces of 80 proof spirits. And, you know, a lot of people will, they think that beer isn't alcohol for some reason. They're like, yeah, well, he drinks like, you know, 12 drinks a day, but it's just beer. You know, it's not, it's not hard liquor, but you know, those are the equivalents and they are the same. Um, so, you know, the, the message from this study is no amount of alcohol is a good amount of alcohol. So really that is the, and certainly during pregnancy, I have to say this, that there, uh, you know, there seems to be this myth out there that having a glass of wine a day when you're pregnant is okay for your developing fetus. No, no, no. Uh, absolutely. It's a zero tolerance during, during pregnancy. This study, uh, you know, it may actually, it's, it's certainly, um, you know, there are flaws in every single study, but you know, it's important that, um, you know, to take this to heart and realize the effects that alcohol can have on your life, on your relationship. If you are struggling in your life, in your job, in your relationship, um, with your spouse, with your family, with your, um, children, if, if anybody has said to you, um, you know, they think that you may drink too much, if you are the last one to leave the party, and you've been drinking, of course, I was the last one to leave the party last night, but, um, I was the designated driver. But, um, if you are the last person to leave the party, always, you're the one with the red stain on your teeth, you can't stop drinking. You know, there is something called binge drinking as, as well. Um, so, you know, the message now seems to, uh, be taking a turn. Uh, some people may say it's a turn for the worse that no amount of alcohol is good for your health. And it's really all about your health. If you don't have your health, honestly, you do not have your wealth. I have a patient in my clinical practice. He's got it all. Okay. He's got it all going on. And he has a very rare hip uh, disorder that has a genetic disorder that has to do with his joint in his hip. And he's looking at um, very intense, um, intensive surgery. And he is now limping and he's in a lot of pain and his life changed in a minute when that happened. And so your life can change in a minute when you lose your health. We see cirrhosis of the liver caused by drinking is up. That's associated with the economic downturn in the United States with the recession. Um, where many men lost their jobs and, you know, lost their self-esteem. A lot of men associate their worth with their job and with the amount of money that they bring in. Drinking happened to have gone up during that time. Um, you know, the, the, so this is important. Well, you know, there are some, there's some evidence in, in other studies that moderate drinking may safeguard you from heart disease, but the potential to develop cancer and other diseases offsets those potential benefits. And those potential benefits may not be that great. Um, so there are other risks of harm as well associated with alcohol, but I think this is a conversation we need 
to start having in this country, um, even though this information is in conflict with most health guidelines, but maybe we, which is about, you know, two drinks a day for um, a man or a woman. So this is something to consider. Um, some of the risks posed by alcohol consumption, of course, driving accidents, self-harm, uh, many medical diseases, um, and it was a leading risk factor for disease worldwide and accounting for almost 10% of deaths among those between the ages of 15 to 49. And, um, and, and globally, there were 2.8 million deaths in 2016 associated with alcohol. And for younger people, the three leading causes of death that were associated with alcohol use are tuberculosis. Somebody said to me the other day, is tuberculosis even still around? Road injuries and self-harm. And I'm going to be talking about self-harm because that is one of the symptoms of psychopaths, female psychopaths, who often have issues in every domain of their life and they often have substance use disorders. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Last week when I talked about male psychopaths, uh, the behaviors that they manifest, a lot of people said, well, women can be psychopaths too. And yes, of course they can. I've even had an experience with a female psychopath myself, as have a few friends of mine. Uh, she Research is very limited though, but it suggests that female psychopaths are manipulative and controlling. They are cunning, deceitful. They don't take responsibility for their actions. They are exploitative, and they lack empathy. They actually also have a jealousy component. They may have a history of being bullied and, uh, their behavioral traits begin to develop in their teenage years. They may also self-harm. Uh, they're extremely manipulative. They commit crimes across many different categories. They they can commit robbery. They can commit white-collar crime. They can commit drug crimes, assault as well. Um, and it's, you know, they often are more motivated by power, dominance, or personal gain than non-psychopathic females. And, and so you may be in a relationship with a female psychopath. Uh, but also female psychopaths are more likely to repeat offend than those without psychopathic tendencies. And many of these traits do apply to male psychopaths as well, but there are differences in, in terms of occurrence rates. Studies show female inmates with psychopathy make up about 11 to 17 percent of the entire prison population versus the male counterparts at 25 to 30 percent. But that may be because female psychopaths are likely to be more relationally or verbally aggressive than physically violent, and therefore they commit less violent crimes than their male psychopath counterparts. And this may ex help to explain the initially surprising fact that women with psychopathy are found to to be less likely to commit murder than non-psychopathic women. We, of course, associate uh, psychopaths with the um, bunny boilers, the fatal attraction uh, type of women, but not necessarily. Female psychopaths can be jealous and parasitic, and that means they feel that they are entitled to live off of other people, and they often use uh, threatening nature or coercion to get support. Um, so female psychopaths definitely do exist. They can be violent. They're mainly cunning, manipulated, calculating, and they're just, uh, just as much or, or if not more than their male counterparts. But they are far more covert and manipulative and, um, they're, 
true natures are rarely identified. So I have an experience with what I believe, and I, and I am not, uh, qualified to diagnose, but, but when you see patterns in, in people's behavior, um, you, you kind of wonder, hmm, maybe that person is, is a, as a psychopath, <laughs> a female psychopath. So this was a friend that I had a, a few years ago. And it started with she, a, another friend of mine had a company and, and he wanted to hire her, uh, because, you know, he met her at, at a party and he, and she, you know, manipulated him basically. And she talked a big story. She had been a stay at home mom and, and wanted to get back into the workforce. And so she overstated her qualifications, but, um, to him, which I didn't realize, but he called me and he just asked me, you know, is she, he basically said, is she like us? You know, is she one of us, you know, person, you know, does she have integrity? Is she honest? Is she trustworthy? And I, I was like, yes, of course. You know, there were, there had been some red flags. She had been jealous one time, like of the most ridiculous thing. I actually had gone to Toronto and I came back and I was running in a, in a race and we were all running together and she was just being so mean to me all morning and I said what's what's going on why are you so vicious and she said well I'm I'm jealous of you you know and I said why and she said because you've been in Toronto I said I never even left the hotel room I never saw Toronto and she's from Toronto so that was one of the issues so this this woman went on to um, work for my friend and in a very short amount of time she actually um, worked on her divorce while he paid her, you know, six figure salary. She took his, uh, his staff. She took his clients as well. And she left with, um, and didn't do any work for him and left, basically stole everything from him because psychopaths tend to steal from other people. Um, because again, they are jealous and they are parasitic. And so I'm in very good company because, I um, mean, this, the fellow who owned the company is still a good friend of mine, but this woman also, um, did the similar thing to another colleague of hers, um, at the next company and, um, and she, and two other, uh, women as well. So people kind of, they're, they're people jumpers and people tend to fall like flies. Uh, you know, you know, they, they just fall one after another. They're, they're gone. And you just think, and, and everybody is kind of gobsmacked and like, what the heck? Um, but you know, they, they, money means a lot to them. They tend to have substance use disorder. And this particular woman definitely had a substance use disorder. Her ex-husband, and that tells you something, um, you know, said that after every party he was, um, he would be driving her home and she would be vomiting. Um, she'd be the one vomiting after the party. So um, maybe the zero alcohol would be good for her. So, you know, it's tough to be in a relationship like that. You think they're your friend and then you find that they're a psychopath. I am, or you're, they're, maybe they're your wife. I am Maureen McGrath and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. You can always email me about any questions you have. I love your emails and I'll be reading them very shortly. Uh, nurse talk at hotmail.com. I do try and answer every single email in due time. Uh, you can always give us a call. 1-877-399-9898. Uh, but I know these are tough subjects and these are, you know, sex is the most, did I say I was talking about sex? Anyway, I always talk about sex. Uh, sex is one of, somebody said to me, it is one of the most interesting and taboo subjects out there. And that's why everyone's, everybody wants to talk about it. Uh, 
that's what I find in my world anyway. And fortunately, I like talking about it myself. But you got to do more than talk sometimes. Uh, that's beside the point. Uh, sometimes sex can get dull and boring because you've been in the same relationship with the same person and you're having the same old sex. And so I'm going to be talking about that a little bit uh, further on in the program in this final stroke of the program. But right now I'm going to talk about porn addiction. Quote, unquote, for an addiction. And then we're going to be talking about brain tumors as well, glioblastoma, a very tragic diagnosis. But uh, porn addiction, you know, I have noticed an increase of men coming into my clinical practice and basically, you know, self-diagnosing, I think I have a porn addiction, um, are the words. And this is not just me. It's an increasing number of men have been self-referring to psychologists and counselors for a while now for pornography addiction. And this is a good thing uh, to seek help for any type of issue that uh, may ails you. But there is a bit of a challenge here, and that is that porn addiction as a mental health disorder does not actually exist because when the DSM-5 in 2013 was updated, the standard classification, with well, the DSM-5 is a standard classification of mental disorders and that's used by mental health professionals in North America. The diagnosis of hypersexual disorder, disorder was considered, but uh, and that would have had a subtype called pornography use, but because of um, there was not enough supporting quality research at the time, porn addiction as a diagnosis does not exist today, and hypersexual disorder was actually put on a waiting list, so neither of which is in uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Uh, there's tremendous debate, contentious debate and confusion about the fundamental aspect of what is effectively a hypothesized condition. And so when you take a look at the literature review, we actually don't have a consistent definition, and that's according to Duffy from 2016. Half of the studies reviewed relied on participant self-assessment to determine if their pornography use was problematic or excessive. And the question being, do you think your pornography use is excessive? And as a result, the researchers concluded that the current understanding of porn addiction is not grounded in any robust evidence. So it's really difficult to determine if somebody has a porn addiction. Addiction. Other studies utilize problematic or excessive porn use, and they use examples like that can be measured 10 or more times in the past three months. Really? Um, and, and sometimes research is actually, you know, it's, it, it, it in itself is not robust enough. Um, so, you know, is there a point at which uh, porn becomes uh, extreme? Is there a line of demarcation for this? Uh, you know, there is this common belief that more porn use equates with more problems. And you've got to wonder if this putative truism is actually, you know, is this is questionable, really. Uh, you know, is it um, 11 hours or more of online sexual activity? And when a study was done by Cooper uh, way back, you know, 20 years ago, uh, it actually found that it did not interfere with the everyday lives of people. So we have this confusing um, evidence around uh, porn use for people. Um, you know, how much is too much? A lot of men view porn and, and a lot of women are, are disgusted by that. That's just a very general, uh, statement, but a lot of women don't even think that their male partners view porn. In a study of 569 heterosexual Caucasian men, there's a problem with the study already, 18 to 68 years of, of 
age. There were 132 that were seeking treatment for problematic porn use. The researchers found that the frequency of porn use had far less bearing as to whether one seeks treatment in comparison to its consequences. So, you know, other researchers have challenged the common assertion that pornography is harmful to sexual functioning, using large cross-sections of men living in multiple com uh, countries. There's little evidence for an association be between pornography use and male sexual health disturbances. But, you know, porn is taboo. And it's a, it's a very much still a taboo subject. And Pornhub has actually made porn available. Uh, 80% of the porn in this world is free. And it was Pornhub who has, uh, is, is responsible for that. So they've altered the business model. So you don't have to put a credit card in anymore. It's accessible to children. So it's really important that sex ed is, uh, educates about pornography because the children can actually access that at a very young age. Um, and you need to educate, uh, men, boys and girls about, uh, who become men and women about porn, the sex that they're seeing in pornography because it actually may not reflect an intimate relationship between two, uh, people. Uh, there's, but some research studies have concluded that the sexual dysfunctions are misplaced as they relate to pornography and there are other factors that come into play like substance use and abuse and stress and depression, intimacy deficits and also misinformation about sexuality. So the bottom line is we have unclear and inconsistent definition of pornography addiction. So it's really difficult to diagnose and then you also risk going into a clinical counselor or, or a psychologist and saying, I think I have a porn addiction. And they can just say to you, you know, they can send you on your way and say, you know what? There is no porn addiction. There's no such thing. So, but if you're having problems in your life, uh, you know, it may be something that you do want to address as behaviors, uh, that are associated in your life. So because we have no diagnosis, we really have no or diagnosis definition. We really have no standardized protocol for treatment. More and more men still are seeking therapeutic help for their self-diagnosis of a porn addiction. I'm not saying that porn does not, porn addiction does not exist. Um, and many, many people may develop an unhealthy relationship with internet pornography, but it's difficult to diagnostically separate these individuals from other people with non-problematic porn use, uh, which is pretty much most men. Women view porn as well, but unfortunately, the, uh, the definition of porn addiction is lacking. Uh, we're going to continue this little series within the upcoming weeks. If you have any questions about it, email me nurse talk at hotmail.com i'm maureen mcgrath you're listening to the sunday night health show welcome back to the final stroke of the sunday night health show i promised you a little better sex in midlife and here it is uh you know one of the uh you know having sex when you've been together for a long time uh more than two years. It's like going to the gym. You should probably do it, but you really don't feel like doing it, but you feel a whole lot better after you've done it. Um, you know, life can get so busy and get in the way. And, you know, as people age, even as they get to 40, they may experience uh, some 
some issues with their equipment and uh, especially for men who may have erectile dysfunction because they may have been smoking up until that time they may have been sedentary they may have had a poor diet using salt you should use no salt in your diet uh, so all of this has a, may have an effect on your arteries and since sex is about blood flow and if the blood isn't flowing and that experience the other day where my equipment wasn't working uh, <laughs> I don't want <laughs> Anyway, not that equipment. Uh, I went to go for a bike ride and I went into the garage to get my bike and I noticed that it had a new seat on it. Who did that? I don't know. And the tires were a little bit flat. So I really didn't have confidence in my equipment. And so I get out there and I'm like, well, I'm going to go anyway. I didn't, I didn't even bother to, like, this is how lazy and complacent we become. I did not bother to pump up the uh, tires because I thought, uh, you know, it'll be softer over the rocks. And I didn't know where the pump was anyway. And so I didn't pump it up. So I can relate to you guys. Okay. So I'm riding along and I wore this jacket that I should not have been wearing. It was too long at the back. And I'm riding along and I didn't have much confidence at the beginning. And I thought, oh, you know what? I'm, you know, what if I injure myself? And, you know, what if, what if, what if, you know, you know, that whole rumination that goes on in your head on repeat. And, and so I'm riding along and then all of a sudden my jacket got stuck on the bottom of my, at the back of my seat and I fell and I nearly broke my hand. And I was highly embarrassed because, you know, I thought that was that was so uncalled for, all of that. It was ridiculous. And so I was embarrassed because my equipment didn't work <laughs> in the middle of uh, a bike ride. So if your equipment doesn't work in the middle of your bike ride uh, in the bedroom, your little ride, your bike ride you're heading for uh, with your lover, you know, that can be a problem. That is why it is so important that you remain healthy uh, at midlife so that uh, your sex life can be better. Feeling healthy and fit makes you feel sexier. You, um, and it's, So it's important, in order to feel sexier, uh, you lean and mean, you know, to have, follow a balanced diet, get enough sleep, don't drink any alcohol, uh, manage your stress levels, and of course, exercise regularly. And, you know, have some of those good fats that are found in oily fish, nuts, seeds, avocado, and oils, because they are important to boost your libido because sex hormones like testosterone are manufactured from the cholesterol that is contained within those foods. So also foods rich in zinc like spinach, beef, and kidney beans also play an important role in the production of your sex hormones. So it's important that you stay healthy. Also, you know what? I hate to say it. It sounds so unromantic, but you got to schedule sex because you know, be at midlife. That's the busiest time of our lives. And, you know, there are so few sex windows at midlife. You gotta capitalize on, you gotta seize the moment, capitalize on that. Um, and so, you know, the mornings can be rushed, especially with the kids going back to school now and getting everybody out of the house. Uh, you know, you might have a train to catch or whatever. Um, and, you know, after you get home from work and home from school, and there's homework and all of that. If, you know, there's so much to do and, and work and people are taking, you know, we're blurring the lines between work and, and home life. Um, and so also then when do you socialize? You socialize on the weekend. So there's so few times when you can spontaneously have sex. So it's good to schedule it, good to plan it. Um, and, and you know what? Have that sex schedule. And researchers from Ruhr University in Bochum, Germany, announced that while it is 
as I said, crushingly unromantic. Scheduling in a time and a date for sex every week and sticking to it as you would a work meeting or your emotional conference that you learned about earlier on in the program, it's the key to keeping your sex life going because you know what? You stop having sex and it's really hard to get it back, let me tell you. Um, and this study was after... The researchers interviewed a thousand couples and found that those who were dutiful and thorough in their sex schedules had more satisfying and regular sex lives as a result. And you want that. I'm telling you, you want that. So, um, because we want a whole lot of happier people around there. So if you're in a relationship, if you're in a good relationship and you're happy in that relationship and want to remain in there, you know what? Uh, another bit of wisdom is uh, kissing. Kissing falls off the bed shortly after uh, you get into the relationship. And so, you know, really being mindful about kissing for longer because it's really important for women at midlife to have, uh, and, and it's very common for women at midlife to have a reactive arousal where men at midlife still have that primary arousal. And that means that a man will just be able to look at someone he finds attractive and feel aroused or he may be able to look at his partner, his wife, hopefully, um, that's what he's looking at, and feels uh, he finds uh, you attractive and aroused. That's why it's good to stay in good shape. Um, where reactive arousal or, res or responsive desire means women need time to become aroused. And you know what? Kissing and cuddling and lots of foreplay uh, will be really helpful. So you want to make those kisses last about 15 seconds and that's really effective in improving libido. So, you know, just do it is is good wisdom midlife. Make sure you get enough sleep, uh, stay healthy, keep a, a healthy diet. You may want to bring some sex toys into the bedroom. I had a, uh, a woman who texted me and she um, she said, what was that sex toy that you were talking about? She said, I can't believe that. She actually sent me a message on LinkedIn. And I'm like, who is this this woman? Because she's like, hey, Maureen, how are you doing? Da -da. And somebody that I knew, somebody that I had worked on in a project in Toronto. <laughs> so she's like, I'm out for ladies night and we're talking about um, sex toys. And what was that external device, that clitoral suckling device, the womanizer, bring it into the bedroom. But right now I have a, uh, a call from Ava. Hello, Ava. Hello, always love listening to your show. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, so what my husband and I used to do, well, unfortunately, we're not together anymore. Oh, dear. So it didn't, it just sounds like that didn't work, but go ahead. Um, <laughs> what did you used to do? Yeah, well, actually, we had the best sex life, and he was the best kisser. Oh. Yeah, I know, right? That's yeah. Sucks. Nobody's compared to him. That flies in the face of my entire program. <laughs> oh, uh -oh. well, that is true. You were having great sex, and you're no longer together? No, he was not very good in following through with the children, and so... Yeah. Oh, yeah. But anyway, during the good times, it was kind of fun because he would sometimes pay me for sex, and it was like, cool, I could go shopping, it was a win-win all around. <laughs> Well, <laughs> we can look at that in a number of different ways. We, hmm, <laughs> okay, interesting. And, and how much did you get? <laughs> uh -huh. Well, hundred bucks. It wasn't like every time, but it was. Yeah, it was just. It was fun. Not bad. Right? Not bad. Yeah. Well, Andrew's. <laughs> wow, he's he's psyched. <laughs> hundred bucks. Yeah, that goes a long way. <laughs> Yeah. Well, good for you. Well, I hope you got half in the divorce anyway. <laughs> there you go. 
there you go. You ended up giving the hundred bucks back. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Ava, for okay. sharing that. That, that I guess that's one way. Yeah. <laughs> um, you All know, right. household Bye-bye. chores that might be trading off household chores. Like, you know, we'll have a little afternoon delight if you trim the hedge, whatever. Anyway. Yeah. No, I know. I mean, it was very enjoyable. It wasn't like it was a chore for me, but it was just, yeah, yeah. an added bonus. Wow. That's amazing. Why did he pay you though? I don't know if you enjoyed it and you wanted to do it. What was the pay for? I just thought it would be fun to get extra money. Oh. <laughs> so he went for it. He was a cheapskate, it sounds like. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> well, thanks so oh, much, boy. Ava, for your call. I really appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye. Bye now. Um, well, I love it. I love uh, ending on like a high note like that. High note. Uh, uh, $100 note. Yes. Anyway, um <laughs> I was going to tell a personal story of mine, but I'm not. I'm not going to tell it. Hold me back. You need masking tape and like, uh, I mean, duct tape. And there are times when. Hold you back. Don't you worry, Maureen. (laughs) Thank you. There are times in life when you either need WD-40 or duct tape. And right now it's duct tape. So, uh, because you shouldn't be speaking. And so I'm not going to, um, share that little personal story. But you know what? Someday I might in the, in the moment, in the right moment. Um, but I also wanted to talk a little bit. I hate to, I also hate leaving, uh, ending the show on a on a down note um but uh you know, John McCain died of glioblastoma. It's the most common and most aggressive malignant primary brain tumor. These um, brain tumors contain various cell types. A friend of mine died of that. Um, some of the symptoms are headache, hemiparesis, or weakness on one side, nausea, seizure, progressive memory, personality deficit, and vomiting. I remember seeing my friend anyway um, at, at a, uh, I think it was a golf tournament, and um, and he told this, he was the funniest guy. He was Irish. He was so funny. And and um you know he landed every joke and he was just it's just fantastic and and this particular joke he just didn't land in it and i thought oh that is so unusual for him and i think it was almost one of the very first signs of his um brain tumor he did have vomiting vomiting in the morning is not uncommon um and some of the treatments are surgery and radiation and chemotherapy and the prognosis which is an estimate of the likely progress of a disease after a diagnosis is based on an average patient group and so um, everybody is different but the prognosis for people with brain tumors relies on many different factors, which is age and health and the size of the tumor and, and whether it's methylated or non-methylated, and perhaps I'll go into this later on in the program. Andrew, thank you so much for your phenomenal uh, support there behind the boards. And uh, as always, I really appreciate that. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Back the Number to the Bedroom, my website, backtothebedroom.ca. Email me if you like, nursetalk at hotmail.com. Keep the dial exactly where it is because Drex is coming up and you don't want to miss him. Uh, he, I also just, I know Drex has this nighttime program and, uh, I just read like if you don't get a lot of sleep, it might increase your risk of heart disease. Anyway, maybe we'll review that later. And I know Drex doesn't get enough sleep. We all need a little bit more sleep, myself included. Anyway, I, I love that, uh, you're listening and you're out there. So thanks so much. Thanks so much for your emails. I'm Maureen McGrath and you've been listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Remember when you stumble on this gravel road of life, make it part of your dance. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.